Welcome in, everybody. And we have got a very special episode today. I am here with uh, author, musician, voiceover artist, Aaron Ryan. Aaron, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. That was my elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist move. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Felt like royalty for a minute. Yeah, everybody's got something. That's right. So, Aaron, um, first things first, you've got this book out, Dissonance. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I would be glad to. I um, I am so grateful for creativity, number one. So I actually have done a lot of different uh, creative ventures in my life. Last year, I tried to make a return to music. I've been a musician, as you, as you so astutely observed. And I really wanted to get back into it. But the landscape has entirely changed uh, since it was my kind of heyday in the early 90s, mid 90s. So to get a gig anywhere is just is in, inordinately hard. <clears throat> and so I said, finally said sayonara to that, it just was became too much of an expenditure. And I said, I need to create. What am I going to do? And I went, aha, the light bulb went off. I, I wrote a, a sci-fi novel in the early 90s, never completed it, actually deleted it. Uh, it just didn't represent where I was going. And I, I just thought, you know, I would love to get back into authoring again. I've published uh, six or seven uh, business books on voiceover. They've turned out really well, but I, I wanted to do a, a fictional account. The story burst out of me, much like an alien queen, uh, hmm. over three weeks' time, uh, right out, well, actually right before Thanksgiving. And then uh, it was literally like November 21st through December 16th. Very dystopian, very post-apocalyptic, um, trying to eke out survival in the shadows after an alien invasion that happened 16 years prior. And it's gritty. It's still in Earth. It's very familiar surroundings and terrain. Just there are now uh, a- aliens and, and enemies among us. But the protagonist slowly is discovering that there's more than that. There's There's a bigger story at play, which makes any good book a better book. So without any spoilers, that's kind of where we're where we're headed. And I'm 181 pages into volume two. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it um, it brought a few things to mind while I was reading through it. Um, it it gave me uh, flashbacks of things like District Nine. Um, I don't I don't know if you're an anime fan, but Attack on Titan. Uh, so some of the some of the themes are in there. Like, yeah, we have this enemy out in front of us, but we also kind of have to be wary of the ones among our ranks. Yeah, right. Uh, so th- thematically, it's a little bit there. It's it's not uh this pseudo German story by any means. <laughs> um, but I I could appreciate um the the. And I'm trying not to go into spoilers either. So I'm trying to choose my words real carefully here. Yeah. Um, I, I can I can recognize some some really engaging um writing tools uh in this book. And I I know to recognize them. Uh if if I was, you know, just a layman coming and reading this, I wouldn't. Uh it it might it might clinch me because ah, this feels really familiar, but that's yeah. what it's meant to do, right? Um, so I I think that this first volume is is going to do exactly as intended. It's going to pull in 
that sci-fi dystopian audience um it, throw it at netflix as hard as you can <laughs> please <laughs> because uh it, anytime i can get uh, a sort of you know red dawn feeling story yeah. i i mean it, it's it's pretty classic at this point yeah it's proven well i think and the other thing that's proven is um Mankind has always been its own Achilles heel. Uh, we're just so at war with each other and striving and, you know, uh, competing. There's always some, you know, grass is always greener on the other side is is just a common trope. And so that creates this, this striving and this um, inequ inequity between us. So it's really frustrating, actually, as I was writing it, I'm just going, you know, this is so true today. Even today, we're so polarized politically, culturally. Um, there's not a dystopia in terms of the uh, uh, like the elite and the and the social class, but there's definitely some stirrings of that. And we're always, you know, every time you see a poll conducted, it's like right down the line, 50, 51 and 49, 52 and 48, split right down the middle. So what became super apparent to me as I was writing it is the aliens are, of course, deadly. They're terrifying. Um, I was really inspired by uh, a quiet place and there's, you know, there's some, I loved the, the, uh, the trailer for that during the Super Bowl yesterday, by the mm -hmm. way, I saw it and went like, Hey, that's my book. Um, <laughs> but not quite yet, but I was really inspired by the, the trailer and I was inspired by the original movie. They are of course, so deadly and you have to watch out for them. The protagonists in, in my book, uh, I have to watch out for them, but it just, again, becomes quickly apparent to the. Um, the protagonist, Sergeant Cameron Shipley, Jet is his nickname. There's he's going to be fighting a war on two fronts, uh, and that's the sad part about it. He's not being told specific things. He's a grunt thrown to the wolves, and that's hard to swallow for anybody. Um, whether you whether you're a uh, uh, you know a salute class flag, uh, what is that called? Flag staff, um, flag officer. Sorry, whether you're yeah, a flag yeah, yeah. officer or not. Uh, it's it's hard for anybody to swallow. So it just he gets more and more frustrated. He's a justice seeker and he wants to see uh, justice done. And you'll find that is coming to a conclusion in volume three. Although for now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and kind of kind of going off of that, uh, you know, he's just a regular grunt kind of guy. Whenever I started learning more about Chet, I was like, okay, well. Where where have I seen this before? It it resonated with uh, say Starship Troopers, uh, right? We we see that grunt perspective uh, all throughout there. I mean I mean even when they you know rank up, they're still kind of you know in the trenches. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're a Warhammer 40k fan. I actually voiced some characters in in Warhammer 4k. Ah, love I did. that. Yep. Uh, but then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when uh, I I refer to the guardsmen. Uh -huh. right? a, a lot of people's favorite armies is just playing the Imperial Guard. Yeah, because there's something poetic about just a man going out there with a las gun, which is like a flashlight in this universe. It, it's yeah. you may as well just be pointing a flashlight. Yeah, exactly. At, but there's trillions of them. Uh, you know, and they, they have this really zealous uh, kind of feel about him, but, it, it, and they just get 
finger flicked by demons and things. Psychers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Psychers are terrifying. Yes, they are. Um, so what, what made you want to uh, come back to dissonance? I mean, you, you said you started it in the nineties, you trashed it. What made you pick it back up? Well, to be clear, so this is this is not the story that I started in the 90s. Um, the story I started in the 90s was actually called The Omega Room, and it was definitely sci-fi trope. Um, it was, you know, had some some rumblings of um, of like uh, uh, um, en- enemy of the state, you know, type of thing, uh, type of tone. However, it just didn't quite represent where I wanted to go in terms of a career. It was taking a lot of time. I had a really crappy word processor computer. So it was called the Omega Room. I gave it the Omega and just hit the delete button. And I remember, you know, hitting it and then just sitting there at the computer for about five minutes frozen going, okay, all right, <laughs> you know, it's, it's gone. I mean, because I did there was no uh, control Z really back then. And so um, uh, this is a different story. I just, I, I am very inspired by uh, by sci-fi, particularly Aliens, James Cameron's Aliens, 1986, uh, Suzanne Collins' um, uh, Hunger Games, Marie Lu's uh, Legend series. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of Shade Owens' The Immortal Ones quintilogy, and it's just it's great, um, great movie fair and, and book fair. I love uh, I Am Legend, just the sense of complete overgrown, uh, unmaintained Earth that's just that's just groaning under the pain of nobody taking care of me there's weeds everywhere lions are roaming the street blah 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 you have anarchy however um with my setting i wanted to make it dire really dire and stack the odds against the protagonist but if you stack them too high then it's a it's a book that's really entirely devoid of hope uh you have to give them some fighting chance it's kind of like uh, you know, if you send him into a ring with a lion, you got to give him a knife uh, of some kind. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to be batting with your fists. But I was very terrified as a child of um, Medusa, the claymation Medusa the Gorgon in 1981's Clash of the Titans. Terrified. I mean, even to this day, you see that image of her with her bright green eyes, you know, glowing and that that high dissonant huh, strain that is played while she's doing her her, you know, paralysis thing. And I thought, what if there were aliens that had a telepathic or a telekinetic ability to freeze you where you stand, psychologically, uh, telekinetically, and then much like the Dilophosaurus in Jurassic Park, spitting its venom on you, you're paralyzed, he can eat you at its at its leisure. And that's what they do. They're terrifying. They're very fast. Uh, they hear like a bat. They don't see too well. Um, their visual acuity is kind of based on uh, the T-Rex's you know, ability. So... In some senses, it's a bit of an amalgam. The 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 Gorgons, they're called Gorgons, are a bit of an amalgam of uh, the best and worst of some sci-fi villains. But um, but they do have their own Achilles heel too. Without a spoiler, again, you're going to find that out in the book. I just long answer to a short question. Really wanted to get back to writing something that was compelling, that was moving, and that I felt was a story that needed to be told that would look great on film. So wrote it in kind of a screenplay fashion as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. Again, when, when I was reading through it, I, something that I kept thinking was, God, I hope this, this gets picked up. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if, 
uh yeah of, of course you do <laughs> uh and hey if if it's uh if if it's given to one of the really hardworking uh animation studios that either amazon prime or netflix are using nowadays you could even be a voice director for it that'd be really yeah. awesome to see um yeah it was terrifying there were some chapters i wrote that just uh i had to kill off a character and it disassembled me uh i was a weeping a crying mess uh i mean that and i've i've never gone there in a story to that extreme when i when i went there it was you know you kind of do this double take and like put your foot in the water pull it out like ooh, do i i don't know if i uh. and when i committed boy uh it just it tore me apart inside and uh so that was just the writing then i came back to it in editing again had to revisit it in editing and it just again same thing knocked me out cold and then recording it in the narration you'll hear it in the audiobook form which should be published this week uh it's i'm weeping as i'm narrating because it, it's just so powerful in those uh in fleshing out those sections in the um in the creation of the book that chapter and another there's a lot of of um ingenuity into it there's a lot of suspense there's a lot of thrill going into it a lot of like you know maybe who done it aspect but my fingers were flying off the keyboard i mean i've never seen them you're looking at them like bionic man <laughs> uh, and that's just kind of again how the story just burst out so i would love to see it on the silver screen love to see it on netflix that would be awesome times a million now to touch on those those characters that you did kill off um as both an author and a, uh, a viewer, part of an audience, how do you how do you feel whenever you do go on the journey with those kinds of characters? Uh, they do get killed off, but then some chapters down the uh, down the line, there's like a callback to that character, a memento, something they wrote, uh, a final initiative or order given to another person or whatever um and does that have to be some big something or can it be just like a little small memento right um like oh they they place this hard-hitting computer virus in here that's gonna wipe it, it, it's the weapon that we need to like take out the replicators or right. uh, you know something like that or could it just be like some little moat of inspiration that might give our main character an idea or what have you. And, you know, at the end of the episode, you're like, Oh man, I couldn't have done it without good old Jack or whoever. Right. Yeah. So um, I think one of the observations that my wife made and my wife is incredibly insightful and very uh, acute observer of just what's going on around her. She's always present. And one of the things that she said was she loves uh, the grief that you marinate in um, for this character who's lost. I'd be really careful not to spoil it. But there are several callbacks and things that remind you of that character uh, as you go further through. And it's, you know, this is early in the trilogy where this happens, relatively early. Uh, it's chapter um, eight, I believe, of book one. It's a It's a character that you haven't been, you know, following too long. So it's it's easier to dispatch that that victim. Uh, and as a reader, it's easier to see that victim dispatched 
and and just kind of be able to to move on, have some semblance of forward momentum even after that. But um, yeah, absolutely. They're marinating in their grief for the rest of the story. There are touch points in volume two where, you know, things are going to remind you of so-and-so. And it becomes the catalyst actually for this journey of accountability that uh, that Shipley, uh, Cameron Shipley, the protagonist, ends up going on. Again, as I mentioned earlier, he's a justice seeker. This should never have happened. This character should never have been killed off. This was pointless and a throwing away of life. So as they go further into this journey, you'll see um, that that's, that's what's carrying him through. That's what's pushing him through towards this journey of kind of holding people's, you know, calling spade a spade and holding their feet to the fire. Um, I'm proud of how it, it, it turned out, but it just becomes a tone. Um, the other thing is that, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, for example, the, um, the movie trilogy, I love the books, read them, read them over and over and over again. But in the movie trilogy, they constantly come back to this little tiny thing as being so malevolent. Uh, this tiny little ring is so malevolent and they have to reestablish that over and over and over again to remind you because Sauron is disembodied. He's this spirit, you know, this, you know, boogeyman spirit suspended over a tower in Mordor far away. Um, but they come back and they reestablish. Well, I had to do that because you have chapters of dialogue and chapters of slow journeying towards their objective, where if you don't have a reminder of how vicious and terrifying and, and, um, again, malevolent, I'm, I'm chills thinking about it. They are terrifying. They're kind of like a Nazgul meets a Dementor meets a, um, Emperor Palpatine meets, uh, a Gorgon just you don't want to meet him in a dark alley and you have to reestablish that to show and so in order to do that you have to take out a character um, got to be done <laughs> right now something that uh, I, and I've been a sci-fi fan my whole life a key foundational point of my fandom of, of my enjoyment of anything really goes beyond science fiction uh, is I have to have a compelling villain. I yeah. have to have some sort of enthralling bad guy or huge evil force. Like it, it can be a Palpatine or it could be the Borg, right? Yeah. You, you, you got your Borg queens, but I mean, the Borg as a, as a race is coming for you. It's not just the queen. Right. Um, it could be the replicators from Stargate, right? There's, there's no, it, in the original Stargate SG-1, there's no one uh, head replicator. It's just right. a wave of evil metal spiders that aren't even really evil. They're just <laughs> following their uh, their their coding. Uh -huh. um, and I, I mean, we can go on the uh, you know the adventure of the week, A team MacGyver kind of stories, but what makes it truly enthralling to me is just a damn good villain. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a very good point. The villain that you don't see is scarier than the one that you do. Um, there is oftentimes in, in like, I'll just draw upon Lord of the Rings again, there is this nefarious corrupting force that is so present and wrapped up in the ring that you're journeying with it. You've got it on your, you know, around your neck. That's that's the villain, and it's representative of of Sauron, who is you know obviously the penultimate villain in the trilogy. 
uh, in that that whole story. But um, I, you hit on something a little earlier. They just following their the spiders. You know, they're just following their programming. So the Gorgons, and they are there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. They've taken out eighty five percent of humanity uh, in in my story. They are to some extent drones. Now you've got differing sizes, you've got different behaviors, differing characteristics, but they've all got their job to do. And it really isn't kind of a reasoning, it's just follow your programming uh, type of drone. So what does that connote? When you have drones, you think of bees, and then you think of a hive, and then you think of a queen. So naturally, there's some kind of hierarchy and order that you'll discover as you go up that chain. Um, and I don't, got to be careful here too, just kind of tread lightly. You will find um, Jet will find rather, and you will find through Jet's eyes that he is dealing with some of that hierarchy, but it's coming on two fronts, unfortunately, for him. And that's the problem is Rodney King, you know, way back when in the OJ Simpson uh, riots, <laughs> said, Can we all get along? We're not getting along. We've had 16 long years to fight these Gorgons and, you know, give them the boot off our planet. And here we are still striving, and there's people working against Jet, and he's just, What is going on? here so there are different things that are working you know against him uh, in that story so there's a villain there and there are obviously villains in e each and every gorgon floating around out there they name them gorgons simply because not because they have any you know representation or um or similarity to snakes you know in their hair or you know ability to, to uh, eyes and then yeah. freeze into stone but they do paralyze you they named them that because of that and there's there's tons of those villains floating around, but I think you'll find as you read flip through those pages that there's a number of villains, and there is a chapter with a villain, a very uh, right there villain that you'll meet, that is highly representative of how fallen we still are after all this time. I'm, I don't want to give it away, but he just he represents. Boy, this is the lowest uh, of depravity that we can sink to. And shouldn't we all be getting along and working together? And we're not. That's very true. Um, and one, one, one last uh, point that I think you highlight really, really well uh, is the importance uh, and just the horrifying nature of the villain that you do not see. Uh I and a whole bunch of people consider uh, the story of Avatar The Last Airbender to be a really, really good piece mm -hmm. uh, of literature and in, in, of uh, media. And the main villain, Fire Lord or uh, Ozai, you don't see him hardly Ever. at all. Yeah. He's it, your first in instances of him, he's this failed, shadowed figure, but his presence is felt through every episode uh, with all of the main cast of characters, not just Suko or his brother Iroh. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, being voiced by Mark Hamill doesn't really hurt. <laughs> um, but he's, and when you finally do meet him, he is terrifying. Yes. Right. What he just kind of coldly does to his son um, and his, his, awesome powers that he right. has when whenever he's he's just burning the entire world um so it's it's that it's that monster movie payoff 
right? What makes the mon what makes the monster terrifying is you see his shadow. You never see him. Right. You 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 feel the impending danger that comes with the the wave of cold and and emptiness that you get just by the monster's presence. So yeah. I, I think that's a it's really uh one of the one of the tropes that I said kind of caught me right is oh this is familiar what is this yeah um, well you talk about that's the mist the gorgons have a mist that encircles them and, and envelops them if you flip that script for a minute however look at the movie batman 1989 batman with with michael keaton it's about batman but you barely ever see him it's all about the joker mm -hmm. right so batman's presence is felt as a force for good throughout the movie of course he's struggling and he's got his own share of traumas that he's dealing with but it's it's kind of one of those things I remember going like, where's Batman? You know, while watching that movie. So it's it's this it's the same but opposite, obviously. But yeah, and I mean a malevolent force that's kind of uncontainable. I loved uh, much as the movie is panned. I loved um, uh, X Men Three at least for the portrayal of the Phoenix. I love Jean Grey's portra portrayal of the Phoenix, uh, Famke Jansen's um, mm -hmm. portrayal of, of the Phoenix. Loved that. You know, I mean, just effectually, story-wise, how absolutely unrestrainable she was. And that's a presence that's felt and seen, so you can grapple with it a bit better. But anytime you're in the shadows, anytime there's something that's felt and you can't put your finger on it and touch it, you know, it's like, how do you contend with something like that? It's It says the, the hairs on your, your arms standing up. Yeah, and it's uh, it's kind of translatable to um, how you mentioned that we're we're really not working together in real life today, uh, because that's that is what the uncontainable uh, villain of our uh, real life modern world kind of is to me is we're we're not working together. We're we we have so much uh, we have so much division. And it, I, I kind of try to see how we can get to that Star Trek level of uh, not just technology, but but being able to coalesce and work together and and have a something resembling a resounding piece, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> a whole bunch of people are rightly so very afraid of something called a, uh, a one world government. Yeah. Um, but yep. if you think about it, unless you want just unending war in space amongst humans, it's almost what we need. It's almost inevitable. I mean, it's yeah. just coalescing of everything. Why don't we all come under one banner? And in a sense, there's unity there. However, there's a lot of things and a lot of, a lot of, uh, logistics and entanglements that would need to be ironed out. It's kind of like when, um, Again, just we're referencing a lot of movies here, but Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when the Klingon planet blew up and they had to incorporate, the, they had to come to the Klingon's aid and no one wanted to do that. Uh, Kirk and, his, and Spock and the team are, are sent out and of course then you have a murder and then there's a whodunit and they go on this journey to figure out. He says at the end, people can be very uh, opposed to change. So yeah, it's just how do we all get along I think is the story that resonates with both of us the most yeah uh, absolutely because in almost any 
sci-fi franchise that has humans sent out into space coming from earth um with a very very special exception of firefly uh, yes. the the world governments do have to uh kind of boil down and iron together mm-hmm. to coalesce and and send out space colonies and firefly is very special because the explanation for how people got out into it, the earth, the earth got used up and that's it. It was yeah. <laughs> like, like Wally happened in Wally. Yeah. It was, it was so fun. Just such a dang fun show. Yeah. So with science fiction being such a vast genre, uh, it kind of, it encompasses a whole bunch of things that, feel like they can stand on their own and be their own subcategory. Do you think that the genre of science fiction kind of needs some redefining uh, so we could set up some some boundaries maybe to say, all right, everything inside of here is strictly science fiction. Everything outside of it is sci-fi adjacent. Hmm, that's a really good question. I, I've not thought uh, that far into it. I mean, ultimately... When you start um, walling that garden, then you're going to have a lot of people resistant to that and just saying, you know, this definitely belongs in that category. It's, you know, just on a simple level, right now I'm dealing with with marketing the book. And of course, there's so many categories on Amazon for books. Uh, And then, you know, you got this many and then you go into the young adult category, teen and young adult. And then you go into the sci-fi category and then the dystopian and the post-apocalyptic and the aliens it just contracts and in some senses that good, that's good, but it's also bad. It would just be nice to have an overall category where it, it, this deals with uh, pretend happenings within the realm of science, science fiction, you know, here we go. And I, I don't think that it's, I don't think I'm not one that's in favor of like uh, restricting or redefining, but I will say that there are a lot of things that fall within that category that probably aren't quite there you know like steampunk kind of stuff doesn't mm-hmm. ever really strike me as as science fiction historical fiction going back uh if that's ever categorized under science fiction it's granted it's maybe they time traveled you know and so they went back to Mar- marty mcfly went back to uh you know the 50s whatever there's nothing really well that's a poor example because they have the delorean and you know uh all that stuff um but if there's if there's some kind of whatever, they're going back to reinvent history and they're they're uh they're dealing with a lot of like steampunk stuff, it's not that doesn't really strike me as science fiction. It should be in its own kind of like steampunk category. And here's science fiction over here. It's still fiction, but it's not like science fiction. In to that, in all fairness, I think looking at my own books, I don't really look at them necessarily as science fiction. Science fiction has always tended to suggest, I think, to a lot of people, Star Trek, the glossiness, the antiseptic nature, the clean nature of space, everything's shiny in the future. Then you have the other side of it that's uh, Star Wars. It's gritty. It is, uh, there's oil leaking out of the, the panels on the side of the ship. They're dirty. Everything needs to be cleaned and washed and just, you know, got to send Martha Stewart in there. <laughs> and, uh, and then you've got things in between. Well, or they're in space or they're on earth 
So I, my book is set in a very much modern earth that's in a sort of arrested development because here we are in 2024. The book is set in 2026. There's a limited amount of progress we will have had between now and then. So therefore it's attainable. It becomes even more attainable when you factor in the fact that we have been invaded by an alien species in 2026. Here we are in 2042, but we're in hiding. 85% of humanity has died off, has been killed off. So there hasn't been a lot of progress or forward momentum. It's still very attainable. How does that fall under science fiction then? It's not clean and glossy in the future. It's dirty, but it's still on Earth. You know, so how does that fall? But it does. It's fiction and it's science-based and there's aliens and all that stuff. So it's hard. It's a hard category to corral. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it is. Um, but it's it's just gotten so dang massive. And, and it's it's uh it's done so over the course of uh, hundred and twenty years, um give or take. Uh, it it, it uh, <laughs> oh well as as far as we would think of um say modern science fiction mm. uh, it really started up in in the late 1800s hg wells and time machine and stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and then uh well that also kind of adds into the question of how do you define what science fiction is right yeah. do you do you start back with uh people like wells um do you go a little bit further down the line do you start with uh mary shelley Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so where's where is that starting point really? Uh, because the the question is not so much to be exclusory to certain stories. It's it's to really find out. Okay, we have this set definition. Where did that start? Where right. where where can we find an anchor point to say, all right, this is where the history begins. Yeah. Good, good, fair question. I think Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, you know, um, oh. and there's a season for everything, but there's nothing new under the sun. So everything kind of hails from something that, that a predecessor that came before that was redundant. Everything hails from a predecessor. <laughs> um, it's, it's the Canterbury effect, right? The Canterbury yeah, tales. Exactly. And we saw that. That was such a, um, uh, or that we saw the Canterbury ghost rather, but I, um, I think that everything pays uh, homage to the things that came before to a certain respect, a certain uh, extent. And I don't think that's unkind or unfair to reinvent um, what I love about, for example, the hunger games. And I saw the movies before I actually read the books is it's so uh, depressing. Uh, it, granted, this isn't earth, you know, it's Pan Am, it's somewhere else, Sure, but it is um, it's depressing. It's sad. And like, Oh, this is so, Horrible. What a horrible environment to grow up in. But, you know, again, they have hope. You can't purge a story of hope. Otherwise, you lose readers. Right. And, uh, uh, and you know, we, we were all about the readers. But that, that um, and I'm reading a, a new series right now. I think I mentioned it earlier, um, Shade Owens, The Immortal Ones. It's a quintilogy. Very reminiscent of The Hunger Games when you first started out. Mm -hmm. You have to have... Hope, but all of those stories that are way back when, I mean, going back to Ray Bradbury, even um, in much more modern times with the uh, War of the Worlds, there was a sliver of hope. We just couldn't see it. And we didn't even have to do anything. We could have just hidden, stayed hidden, 
And the parasites and the bacteria would have eventually killed them off. You know, had we just hidden. Um, yeah, you probably would have you know been a little loss of life, but still. All of the stuff that comes after pays uh, homage to the things that came before. And I think it's just a fitting tribute that you have so many different styles of of um, science fiction today. It's good to reinvent that wheel. It's because then you you step in that new world and you go, wow, this is new. Right. This is different. I like this. What is this? If it's so familiar, you kind of lose the creative edge. Uh, or sorry, you you lose the familiarity. Um, it's just anyway, got to stretch yourself when you write. Sounds painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the draw and quarter stretching, not that kind, not the William Wallace okay. stretch. Just well, you know, as, a little bit of like flexibility. <laughs> sure, as, as long places, as we're safe. Right, go places where you didn't think you could go. I, I know you're a voice actor. What what are some of the things that you've uh, you voiced for? Well, uh, there's a great new book out called Dissonance Volume One Reality, and boy, the the voiceover narrator for that book is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, just I, oh, oh, I bet wonderful. He's top of the line, really. Um, I I'm Fortune 500 companies all over the world. Very privileged and proud to be uh, right now the voice of United Healthcare. Um, so. Uh, there were a ton, there was a lot of work that came for that from um, for open enrollment that happened I think starting in September October whatever November so I did a lot of work for that and some of those commercials are still swirling around out there somewhere uh, but I've done Microsoft um, Amazon Uber Cadillac Wrangler um, Nutrisystem um, BMW Enterprise uh, geez a law whole slew of e-learning companies. Um, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. I've done a ton of work uh, for a lot of companies, and it's probably good that I don't remember all of them anymore. Uh, <laughs> there was a time where I could remember all of them, but it's it's great. I do a lot of uh, commercial and e-learning narration. So audiobooks are not my forte intentionally. They don't pay very well to narrate, and they take a long time to do so. So they're, they wreak havoc on your voice. Um, you have to commit to doing just that for a while. And it's, I prefer commercial and e-learning. Okay. Quite a, uh, quite a resume. Yeah. And to I've say the least, yeah. good, good Lord. I, that's, that's what I hear from uh, any voice talent that, that talks about doing the work is, I, I, I don't think I've heard a, a bad word about it. Um, I, I mean, people working with different people that's going to vary but the work itself i i don't think i've heard a a mal word against it well not everyone gets a studio mascot either so you can't really see her there but that is macy girl who's laying right there on the on the chair in the studio so she's rather i don't know that i i'd have to shine a big floodlight in there but she is a lab hound pointer she's 12 years old and she's my favorite baby girl she's a good girl She's very comfortable right now, so she won't be joining us. I, I can I can see the chair, and it's just pitch black in in the seat. So I was like, "Is that a? It might be a gorgon spider. Is it an iguana? What is this? <laughs> no spiders, that, no iguanas. That that reminds me of a, a 
joke I saw on uh, on Kill Tony. The the comedian said, "I I have a chameleon infestation, uh, but it's really hard to tell." <laughs> I get it. Yeah, they're blended in. Nice. It's fun. Uh, so just really quick, uh, what what are in this is just jumping straight into uh, nerddom. But what are what are some of your favorite realms that you enjoy visiting? Well, I'm I'm a massive uh, Lord of the Rings geek. Um, aliens. If if I could swivel this camera here, I've got a huge um, bookshelf that's just loaded with Lord of the Rings collectibles. And last uh, May, I turned uh, fifty, so getting old. But when I did that, I took a, a solo trip out to um, uh, Dalton, Georgia. And um, they basically have an Airbnb there that is Lord of the Rings themed. And I was in heaven. It was absolutely, it's called Rohan. I think he's changed the name now, but it was called Rohan at the time. And it was Rohan. You are in Meduseld in the, the chief um, you know, palace there on top of the hill in, in, in Meduseld. And geez, collectibles galore. It was so cool. There's a, of course, it's a mashup of all, all the parts of Lord of the Rings around every corner. So, you know, there's a little bit of fellowship here, a little bit of Return of the King, Two Towers, just it's interspersed everywhere. And it's absolutely amazing. Love Lord of the Rings. However, as much of a rings geek as I am, and I always will be, and I evermore shall be, um, Aliens is my top uh, favorite movie of all time, 1986 Aliens with James Cameron. Um, I just, I love that movie so much for everything that it represents in terms of cinematic value quality filmmaking excellent storytelling terrifying creatures characters that you love wonderful plot great effects score the musical score everything about it is so good um so i just i love that big fan of the of the terminator series i'm a total uh, transformers original g1 but all the g1s are coming back with way more articulatable forms and so there's a ton of Transformers over there. Skyfire is my favorite uh, out of all the Transformers and Grimlock, the Dinobot. Uh, I love um, the, the Zorro films. I love those. Um, Antonio Banderas. I love the... Um, um, what else? There's so many. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about the different, the different movies. The TV shows, right now I'm in Smallville. I've never watched Smallville. And I'm absolutely loving going through Smallville. I'm in season three. He's just come out of the red kryptonite haze. So that's good. Books, uh, again, Lord of the Rings at the very top, and then a distant second, third, fourth, and fifth. Anything like dystopian, uh, I love um, Suzanne Collins, Marie Lou, Shade Owens, uh, K.A. Riley. I'm looking forward to that. James S.A. Corey with The Expanse. So, yeah, a big fan of Superman. How come I didn't mention that? I've got some Superman stuff here. And uh, Star Wars, of course. Yeah, I'm not as much of a fan of the things that are that Disney is churning out as much. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm an original um, release fanatic, and the things that come afterwards that are supplemental are kind of like, eh. So like Lord of the Rings, yeah, Rings of Power, eh. Star Wars G1 stuff, you know, Episode four, five, and six, and then Episode one, two, and three. And seven, eight, nine. So anyway, Star Trek. Love Star Trek. The 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 original movies. Okay, so you're throwing out a lot that yeah. uh, 
kind kind of makes me go into a branch of a previous question, uh, kind of defining what uh, what certain things are and subsequently what they are not. So, Lord of the Rings. Let's say when I saw Rings of Power, I was like, "What? what? There are beardless dwarves. Why are there beard? What?" <laughs> that makes no sense um and what they did with sauron and galadriel n not only is it not uh written canon it, it's it's completely its own uh, artistic stick. license yeah and if if you want to do that fine but if it's gonna be if if it's something this big, give us that caveat. Uh, conversely, if you do it with something like the boys, okay. the boys it was a beloved graphic novel series. Right? Yeah. So it it had it had a pretty big fan base, pretty big audience. A bunch of my buddies were like, "This is getting a show. This is amazing." <laughs> now the show itself is very different from the series from from the graphic novel series and if you read the graphic novels thankfully so because there's just a whole bunch that i i think would uh get amazon uh prime hq kind of burned to the ground um right. if if they put it on a like actually on screen but the 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 vastness of the the chasm that is in between how big and how influential and important uh and and earth shattering the boys is versus lord of the rings lord of the rings is colossal it's it's, it's magnanimous it's it's at the top yeah. the the boys you can play around with that all you want it's fine the there's an enormous difference there we didn't yeah. need that caveat with the boys we we don't need it with invincible that's also a name sometimes right. i'm just plugging away right yeah uh, there's tons. yeah and we need that caveat with something as big as lord of the rings yeah. um to to kind of just just warn us just warn us that it's going to be crazily different mm -hmm. um and you you mentioned that you are a bit of a uh, Star Wars purist. My my buddies would call themselves Star Wars purists. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm I'm an old EU geek, so the 150 plus novels and books and things that came out, I read them all, baby. Yeah. Like, uh, Split through the mind's eye. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. did. Uh, what was what was the book that had the the eye of palpatine that big old asteroid uh proto death star thing i don't remember <laughs> um there's one one of my favorites which is vastly disliked by the eu community is the courtship of princess leia where the the now new republic is considering using leia as a political piece to marry her off to 
uh, the prince of the Hapes Cluster, who's this smoking hottie. He's, yeah. he's got a fleet of battle dragon starships. He's got a mountain of treasure that the newly formed government could really use. Yeah. So they're like, hey, Leia, can you? Han's like, nope. nope. Kidnaps her and takes her on this adventure job, across the galaxy. Good job. Uh, so there's there's this wealth of, and that's why I make that distinction between uh, just how big something like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars is versus the boys. Star Wars has this mountain, this treasure trove of stories and ideas and comics and graphic novels and uh, everything else that's behind it. Right. That was just all kind of chunked with uh, the Disney acquisition and to kind of rub salt into the wound, uh, you had Disney Lucasfilm reps like Kathleen Kennedy come out and say, well, we just don't have, you know, anything to go off of story-wise. So we're kind of making it up as we go along. And then you have us and probably the purists too screaming in the background going, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> You you could have had we could have had all of these different I I I digress otherwise it'll be a tiatride of it we'll put them on trial here right <laughs> but um as well I'm, you might be a great person to ask this question to um because you are an author and uh, you've you've got all of these experiences. Um, and you're, you're a author of a novel here, uh, a, a book rather than, than a script. Although you did mention earlier that, uh, you kind of wrote it in such a way that it could be pretty easily converted into a script. You have to visualize it as you're going along. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> um, how much poking and prodding can be done to a story? Uh, how how much artistic license can be taken before it becomes not the story that was originally written? Because there are going to be things that need to be adjusted to be put onto a television screen. Sure. Of course. But how much of that can be done before it's considered butchered? Well, the more you add, the more you start stuffing holes with things that you think go in there. It's putting squares and round holes and, and all of that stuff. Um, you, The instant example that comes to mind is just putting unnecessary garbage into a film uh, or a book that doesn't belong, i.e. George Lucas and the the he's replete with all of these um, new additions that he's released. And there's this correction and that correction and Geez, the 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 sheer amount of iterations that Obi Wan Kenobi's old Obi Wan Kenobi's yell has gone through when he encounters Luke after the the um, uh, uh, the Sand People attack, you know it it just it's turns into this it's turned into this orgasmic scream, you know, and they're like what what was wrong with the first one? It's just it was so silly and so needless, and the same can be true when you do that to a story, you end up kind of warping the original vision and clouding it. And you're going to have reviews from people that say this is slow paced. Um, there's too many, there's too many threads going out in different directions. And as an author, you run the risk of not solving all of those threads. 
you can't have too many different things. And I think that's where an author like Tolkien with Lord of the Rings is so um, bulletproof in that he decided to split in the two towers, the end of Fellowship of the Ring. He decided to split into three different storylines, running narratives and slice them all together. Granted, uh, the first half of two towers is Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas chasing after just Merry and Pippin. And then book four, which is two towers part two, is then it's Frodo and Sam and their journey uh, to to Mordor. So, but it's three different running lines, and you've got to then establish a chronology. Okay, they they're here when they're here, and if that's taken a week, then they would be over here. And you have to maintain this, you know, this running storyline of all these things that have to happen in tandem. Um, and thus the appendices, you know, on the, the, the massive amount of appendices, but, you know, I'm nowhere near Tolkien. He was absolutely brilliant. And I'll, I will, I will always pale in comparison to him. Every author will, I think he's he, the dude invented an entire language and then just wrote a book around it. Um, that sounds a little cavalier. I don't mean it like that. He just, he wrote a massive epic, um, uh, around this, this thing. So you have to be really careful and you have a responsibility to your readers and your viewers that you're giving them something that they'll actually care about and not convoluting it with all this extra detail. Right. And uh, I, I think maybe somebody said this about him or it's a quote from Tolkien, but it, when whenever he did uh, invent the Elvish language, he said, well, I made this language. Now I have to write a story around it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, it just shows how kind of a badass he was yeah um but um i what what do in this will this will be the the last really big big question kind of going off of that last one um do you think that studios and writers and executives and producers are not really trusting their audience to be intelligent enough to process a very complicated story because we've, we've seen how like kind of piecemeal and bland and just, you know, uneventful or unfulfilling. A lot of these stories that we've been getting the past 10, 15 years have been. Mm -hmm. So, um, there are different things in volume two that I'm currently writing right now or scribing as it were that are callbacks to details that you've come to learn in volume one. Uh, and I think that you have to do that in order to carry it forward because otherwise this is point, not pointless, but it becomes then minutia. If it's just a happenstance thing that just happened and then it's done with, well, whatever. But if it sounded ominous, compelling, important enough in, you know, the first occurrence, then you need to revisit that uh, in your storyline later on. I don't think that's complicating the, the story. I, I don't think a, a, a revisitation then assumes that your audience won't remember. I think that honestly, though, most of them won't. You've given them a lot of material to digest in a story. But then, they, again, just not to harp too much on George Lucas, but I will. Yeah. The extended versions or the recreation abominations of the um, of the Star Wars trilogy uh, you know, you have that scene where it was originally a man Jabba that Han Solo walks around and goes, Jabba, you're a wonderful human being. It was a man. Then it was changed into the slug, a CGI slug, and they have him walk over him, 
you know, and then uh, it looks shoddy and horrible. And then they walk off, you know, they slither off and walk off together. And then you see this guy walk in and then he turns towards the camera and it's Boba Fett, you know, and it's just like, you could have just had him walk. He didn't need to turn towards the camera and go, oh, we're that dumb that mm-hmm. we need to see a frontal profile of, uh, I mean, a frontal view in, in order to recognize that it's Boba Fett. No, a profile is totally good. We can see his rocket pack. We can see his helmet. We can see him carrying his gun. We can tell the color of the armor. It's just they're dead giveaways. And they, that is that to me is more of a, of a patronization or a condescension of your audience that you have to just, you know, hey, make I have to make sure you see this now. Did you see it? Look, did you see this? This right mm-hmm. here, it's just kind of silly, uh, and that's why they're so widely panned. Those new improvements uh, in the trilogy. So, um, I think that yeah, you could definitely go overboard. But I think that uh, if a person, this is why you have to make a book so compelling and gripping for them to continue reading. If you've carried them and sustained their interest all this time then these then they will remember they'll remember when you're alluding back to something earlier if it was a even a minutiae detail they're probably going to remember that because they want to read and their their appetite is voracious to read through it they'll remember well there you have it folks straight from the author himself Aaron Ryan uh, be sure to keep all of that in mind when you're reading through dissonance Aaron reality <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for yeah, hopping on the show today. Absolutely. You can you can come back whenever you write another book, do an audio. And hell, if if you do a, a Qualtrics e-learning, yeah, come back on and we'll talk about it. I will. Until then, everyone should go to dissonancetheseries.com. And then you can actually enlist. I call it enlisting because it's military. Uh, and our protagonist is military. You can sign up on the blog there. And then be kept up to date on further releases, what's going on with the storyline, um, different promos, you know, sales of the book that are running, uh, KDP, Kindle, everywhere else. Um, sign up on that blog and then you'll you'll find out what's going on in the world of, of Clarkston, Tennessee, uh, Earth in the year 2042. It's going to be almost 2043 by the time we reach the end of the, the trilogy, so... You act now. Better hurry. <laughs> well, uh, Aaron, after reading through it, let's hope you're not a prophet. But, <laughs> but for now, my friend, live long and prosper. And may the force be with us all. Nanu, nanu.